everyone from uh, city planning, so decision makers, lawmakers, the tech companies, the people building the algorithms that will potentially um, be making the decisions for autonomous vehicles, or let's say um, within scooter companies and all the way to the investors, if the people in those community in, in all of those little groups don't reflect the community that was supposedly that we're going to provide access to all, then it will never happen. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, Senior Transportation Reporter with TechCrunch, and today I am joined by, by your good friend. Alex Roy, the founder and co-host of the No Parking Podcast and director of special operations and secrecy at Argo AI. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the communications director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education. Did you forget what the acronym stood for? (laughs) No, definitely not. Okay. I'm also the author. Of ludicrous, the environment story of Tesla. <laughs> you bet he is. Well, in that case, I'm also the producer of Apex, the Secret Race Across America. <laughs> okay, um, this is a, this is a one-upmanship contest. I will let's, just, let's, be, let's just be clear that my title has not changed at all. Well, I guess I was at Fortune, and then now I'm here at TechCrunch. But uh, besides that. Isn't your title adult in the room? Isn't that are you, your title? Yeah, are you implying that Alex and I shuffle through jobs the way other people change their clothes? Yeah. That? That's not that's not fair. Look, uh, my not friends, fair. my friends, in light of the events going on in the world, uh, both COVID and uh, the demonstrations and the racial discussion, may I propose that soon we should get someone to come on and talk about the book The Power Broker? You've, you've both read that book, right? Not since college. Okay, I haven't read it since I, high I should, school. I should reread it. Yeah. You should, because the yeah. power broker lays out, like, if you want to understand American cities and class and race and how architecture, urban design, uh, all of it affects us, that is, that's the book. And I think a lot of people who don't think that problems are systemic are unfamiliar with that history. Well, I would, I would, uh, I would agree with you on that because, for example, um, my newsletter this past week uh, in the intro, I essentially said, you know, it can feel a little bit silly to be writing a newsletter about transportation right now um, in light of demonstrations around not just George Floyd's death um, or murder, um, and many other black men and women in the community, but also um, systemic racism. But I noted that actually transportation is, is plays a huge part in not just what, how we think about things in terms of urban planning and cities, but systemic racism because of the idea of access to all. And um, of course I received several emails from people who wanted to point out a number of things to me, like, you know, what you might expect. Keep things unpolitical, please. That was a common one. Stick um, to cars. They don't oh, think no, transportation is political? They don't like it when I stick to cars, though, because when I stick to cars, you see, as a woman, I really should not write about shit I don't know. Oh, so, okay. right. so, right. <laughs> that's good. That's, it's that, almost that's as if someone will complain no matter what you do. Right. So, uh, and then one of my favorites was that 
you know, sort of sort of more around the all lives matter theme of things. And and so it just has encouraged me to double down on it because I think that as many people don't realize who have access to transportation because they have the the wealth to buy a car and own a car and park a car. Um, they just don't understand what it means to live in an area where your options are um, being in a transit desert, essentially, and either going into extreme debt um, in which $1.2 trillion of Americans hold of debt of auto loans um, or trying to access transit to get to the job that's far away from them because they live in a city with really high housing prices. And if you've never experienced that, you just don't understand what that means, what the like just emotional drain it is every day to be commuting that long um, and the history of it. So I, they, I think they should be ready for me to be writing about that more often. Um, and we should talk about it here. I agree. You know, uh, I, again, I hate to say this isn't a show about politics, but anyone who doesn't think that transportation isn't political, it's just not qualified to be part of any discussion. Well, I would extend it far beyond being something that's political. It comes down to, and we've talked about this many times, um, about your idea of, and you've said not necessarily an original idea, but the universal universal basic mobility, which by the way, I think I want to take a little bit of credit for because I remember on the show months prior, we talked about whether something was a, uh, whether moving from point A to point B was a fundamental right or not. Of course it is. And if you, if you see, you know, the movie green book. Yeah. 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 Of course. I mean, it's like anyone who doesn't think that move freedom of movement uh, isn't a fundamental right. And that there isn't that transportation and getting around doesn't have class and race discrimination built into the restrictions around movement is it's just blind. So in the words of Seth Rogen, get fucked. So actually uh, <laughs> my dad um, runs a, a blog. My dad, we did an episode with him a year or so ago. Um, but uh, he, he runs a website called Curbside classic and it's like an, it's like a car nostalgia website. And like, he uh, read this book and, and wrote a review of it there. Uh, and the book's called Driving While Black by Gretchen Soren. And he, he, made, he, he really illustrated an important part of what you're, you're talking about, Kirsten, which is that like cars are a thing that a lot of times people go to, it's sort of like sports or whatever, where people go to, for sort of escapism. But in particular, at, and especially at a, a car nostalgia site, which is a, a way a lot of people relate to cars in a nostalgic sense, which is interesting in and of itself – that nostalgia is based on a very white experience with cars, right? We associate it like as part as such a fundamental part of our American quote unquote American culture um, because it's freedom and the road trip and exploring these wide open spaces and, you know, and all this stuff. And the reality is, and, and a lot of, you know, white people don't, don't know this. Um, they might have some vague conception of it, but like no actual familiarity with the details. I certainly given that I write about this stuff all the time was woefully like under uh, educated about this stuff, like the black experience with cars is, is, you know, th that's there that th it's like that appeal of freedom and America and being so fundamental to this, to this country may make cars super appealing, but their actual experience with them was that, you know, trying to have their piece of that, that freedom and, and that American culture, you know, met with a lot of resistance um, in a lot of different forms. And whether it's the green books, 
um, that were used to sort of help black families navigate these. But anyway, the, 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 the point being, um, I think it's, it, you know, when you think about then, you know, police or, or a number of other issues. And I, I tweeted about this the other day, like it, it's very easy, I think for a lot of people to not understand how differently other people experience the same thing. And I think that looking at it through the lens of cars, you can then sort of understand how maybe people with different back from different backgrounds might look at police so fundamentally differently. So I think if cars are something that get your attention, um, it is actually a good topic uh, uh, through which to explore these really, really important ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would definitely recommend not having even having read it myself, but just having talked to my dad about it and read his review of it. Um, Driving while black, it's certainly I'm I'm planning on reading it myself because I think it is. Uh, important that we all have at least some level of of education um, around these issues, or at least make the effort to. to well, and, and we haven't specifically talked about the black experience, and I don't think it's really appropriate for us to do that. Um, it would be a much better for um, a member of the black community who is deeply involved in automotive to be talking about that. Which one of our I know exactly one of our earliest right. guests was Dr. Maya Rockymore, and she right. talked a lot about about this kind of stuff. Uh, right, I'm just saying the, now. I mean, I know we've had yeah. guests who've talked about that, but I would say that what is absolutely appropriate for us to talk about, and we have, and we have for a long time, is the idea of the lack of access to transportation through even the lens of technology and what that means. Because while Alex does work for a AV company and now Ed works for a educational nonprofit. Sure. But a specific focus on autonomous vehicles. My big criticism of AVs has been over the years uh, a lack of owning the fact that this could be potentially a, a hugely profitable business and instead focusing more about, at least in terms of their marketing and their messaging about how it's going to help all when I haven't really necessarily seen evidence of even vehicle design that would really even uh, help all. Now, I understand that's early in the progress of development and that could change, but it's been one of my biggest criticisms of the industry as a whole is they keep talking about helping all these people and I don't see any clear evidence of even thought processes around business plans or where they would these cars would be sent or what these cars would look like and function to actually provide access to all. Yeah. So so what I think what you're pointing out is right, like the reason that that we should be looking at this history and and these issues um, is not just because it's a big national conversation we're having right now. That is one reason to do it, but I don't think that's enough. I think specifically for those of us who are in um, mobility technology. Like we do, what we have is a, is a unique, like once in a century opportunity to begin to uh, rethink and rebuild how we get around. And the more awareness there is among the people working and, and discussing uh, these topics of that history, the the better the chance there is of that that we can actually build these new ways of getting around in ways that that actually you know don't run into those same, those same problems again, right? That you right. learn from and history in order not to repeat absolutely. it. We have a unique opportunity because this stuff is so new and because it will be so fundamental to the next century um, and, and beyond 
that you know it really is incumbent on us to to understand as much of that history as possible in order to make those outcomes as good as possible. And I'm I'm sure Alex will want to jump in here, but I don't believe that that is possible if you don't have um, everyone from uh, city planning, so decision makers, lawmakers, the tech companies, the people building the algorithms that will potentially um, be making the decisions for autonomous vehicles. Or let's say um, within scooter companies and all the way to the investors, if the people in those community in, in all of those little groups don't reflect the community that was supposedly that we're going to provide access to all, then it will never happen. So there you go. Um, by the way, um, our episode with Dr. Maya Rockymore uh, that I referenced earlier is episode eighteen. Uh, if you want to go back and that check was that pre, out. That, I, was, that was before my time, I think. That's right. That was pre-Kirsten. Um, it's a great well, episode. It's um, a part, of the, part of the era of the Atonic Acid. And Maya Rockymore is now running, is she running for office? Um, and she was the, uh, she was married to Elijah Cummings, who was a really, really fascinating guy. She still is. Um, we should have her back on the show. Would not be a bad idea. Um, to talk about, to talk about transportation. Um, my friends, we need to move on to Another topic okay. that because we're at, we're short on time. Today. You always say that. that by topic, the way. I feel like you have too busy of a schedule, and I like to see you put us as priority number one first. Oh, uh, I've got something to do in, in forty minutes. Look, uh, I want to talk about this International Institute for Highway Safety report. We can keep it short, um, but it's important because last week, um, IIHS, which is a an organization that's done good work because it, as you know, I care a lot about driver assistance and only two organizations for a long time were doing real testing on ADAS. IIHS was one of them and they were, you know, testing how well automatic emergency braking uh, functions in cars. And, and they've done some good stuff there, but they had this report last week and I got a text message from Edward Niedermeyer saying, have you seen this report? And it didn't dawn on me right away that it, this might really matter because, you know, Ed, you know, I, you basically like to ignore it is what you're saying. If I haven't seen it first, I assume it doesn't matter. And then I saw the report and I was like, wow, this is well-intentioned, but very not aligned with how autonomous vehicles are actually developed. Is that careful communication? <laughs> Have I learned? Careful? I find it a boring if statement. I, I wish you'd be more honest. All right, so the headline on the website, uh, IHS website, was automation may not eliminate crashes. Now, as someone who is a great skeptic of technology and works at an autonomous vehicle company, of course, automation is not going to eliminate all crashes, but to suggest that it won't eliminate any, hint, um, uh, is, is absurd. Because if, if you go back to 1911, you could say, Powered flight may not cross the Atlantic. It may not. But if you believe in innovation at all, you have to believe that eventually someone might figure something out. And that if there's time and money and people devoted to it and you have a goal, that eventually you will. These absolutist statements are as absurd as saying they will eliminate all crashes. This is as dumb as saying they will eliminate none. Right. And um, the other biased person in here should also. Well, that, well you can't say it's not biased because. Let's think about this. If, if you go back, it, imagine you get the headline in 1853. Um, steam-powered trains may not ascend mountains. 
Well, they of course they may not because steam powered trains were in their infancy. Right. You might also say you might also say rockets may not escape Earth gravity. Right. Well, they may Alex, not. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I think we should hear from the two biased members of the more biased members of the podcast, and then I'll weigh in. What's what, out of curiosity, Kirsten? What's my bias? I get accused of bias all the time, and I'm constantly having to learn all the ways in which I'm biased. And we all we all have lots of biases. I'm just curious what, no, I'm what specific of my biases are you referring to here? Just so the listeners well, can be clear on that. Okay, to be clear on that, um, I'm not actually saying that you do have a bias, but the <laughs> you know, but you literally did. No, well, <laughs> I, was you. I was trolling you. Oh, but I, I see. Say, but let me explain. But the perceived bias is that now that you work for an organization that is granted on educating autonomous vehicles, it still is a specific stance. that There's more of a potential positive view to be had within it. I know that the organization tries to be fairly like straightforward and objective, but it is in a balanced view, but it is supported by other AV companies. So that's where the implied <laughs> bias is potentially that you support the same. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, you know, look, I'm, you know, clearly that perception is out there and, and that's a reality and, and it's incumbent on us, um, Have, who, who, by the way, I don't speak for, I'm just my personal opinions here. Um, you know, we, we, we need to build our credibility as an educational resource and, and our goal in, in responding to this IHS study was to do just that. It was not a question of, um, this is negative and therefore it's bad at all. It, it was, there was just, it was something that was not, uh, the, the, the public perception from this study was not matching what was even in the study itself, right? So, so that headline was, was only about a third. So the, the very first sentence of the discussion, of the discussion section of this study, of the actual text of the study itself. Uh, and by the way, I should say, IHS generally, like Alex, huge fan of them. They do some great work on, on a whole number of things. It's not just ADAS testing. Which is why I think so Statistical analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, so the first sentence of the discussion, episode, uh, the discussion section was this. Only about a third of serious crashes could be preventable by AVs if they are not designed to respond safely to what they perceive. Right. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Which is like saying, an, you know, an airplane <laughs> wouldn't fly very far if its wings didn't generate lift. Like, right. okay, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Like, that is an yeah. accurate factual statement. Yeah. Does it give the right? So, so the problem with it, and the problem that that we were trying, you know, we were trying to respond to was the fact that, like, the media, right? The the nuances in, as I just read, it's in that report. IHS is not spreading lies; they just put something out that the media, unfortunately, like reported in a very reductive way, where that nuance largely was lost. And so, we, and by the way, yeah. if you, if you look at the car and driver article. About this this report, the headline is "Autonomous cars won't avoid majority of crashes," and it's like everybody get just read this wrong. Yeah, right. So can the media weigh in now? Okay. Well, you're not the media because you actually know no, what you're but talking I, but about. But I'll tell you why. I'll tell you my position. I didn't. I didn't cover this study because of its uh, problems. When I see <laughs> studies. Go out. And I also really respect the organization. I've used them in my reporting for their, you know, like their safety picks and things like that. When I see a study that has 
a lot of maize, coulds, and mites, and also a lot of nuance, and not really a clear a path to understanding how they reach necessarily these. I mean, you had to really dig in to kind of understand why they reach certain specific reasoning on some things mm. without having the like. Pretty much figure it out from the abstract, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I mean. I like to see methodologies. I like to see, you know, things like that. So I had to ask myself, is this even worth digging into the point where I'm going to report this out? And- I can give you the headline of this episode is TechCrunch editor claims IIHS report beneath her, <laughs> comma, some say. May. What, what was, what was the, the, like for you, the, the, the thing that made it just not worth cut was it, was it that it was like hard to take a takeaway from it? Like what I, I'm, I'm still, I, w- I want to understand it better. I can see why I, for number one, I can see why so many people covered it because as soon as you read the abstract of it, it seemed like a very clear, like, this is something that we could cover weighs in on self-driving cars this is a respected organization. You know, um, a lot of automotive reporters have, have used, um, their data before. And again, what, what immediately made me sort of sidestep this study and focus on other stories was that it was so speculative in nature mm-hmm. that it would be like me writing an article about like predicting the presidential election a decade from now, um, or 12 years from now. Uh, it, it, there's so many different ways it could go and it didn't seem to dig into, and also, you know, statistical, any kind of statistics that are thrown out when it comes to future technology, it usually ignores an important piece that hasn't been considered. And it, so if you're going to write about that, then you have to acknowledge it immediately in an right. article. And so right. I realized that if I were to write an article half of the article will be explaining why this is not necessarily like really the reality. And then I'm like, am I going to be making people dumber as a result of writing this story or smart? Yes. Dumber. Well, it, it depends. And, and, and I, again, I mean, I think, you know, uh, you mentioned my bias. I mean, our bias is that, is that this is an yeah, educational opportunity. I, break. I just, no, I, I understand. And, and like, I think the, the fundamental methodology of the, of actually getting the data was was good and and it casts a really interesting light. It, it, we we know so basically what they did is that is there's a database um, of sort of causal factors in in crashes and I think I want to say it's like five thousand uh, uh, crashes where they they collect this extra amount of data and and so it's really interesting that they took that database and they broke the crashes in it down. And they said, you know, 24% uh, had to do with sensing or perceiving factors, 10% incapacitation, 39% planning, deciding, uh, uh, 23% execution performance, 17% predicting. Like, that's interesting. Right. That, problem, is worth, that is worth focusing on, yep. but not necessarily the takeaways based on that breakdown, if that makes right. sense. Right. That was where they basically, it was the, it was the assumption that... Um, AVs will be better at humans in perception, uh, and but nothing and else. in and in incapacitation. In other words, they won't become incapacitated, which is ten percent of things. Then What's you have, actually perception is twenty four. Thing about it is that that 
for what they didn't conclude, which is bizarre, they concluded that uh, AVs will not be capable of incapacitation. But actually, there's a there's a parallel. If an AV does not have redundant sensors, it is absolutely capable of being incapacitated. Right. So you you know if AVs have you know don't have um, multiple sensors, they also may not perceive as well as people. So I mean, the speculation was across the board. If anyone had looked at the org chart of Waymo or any number of companies, Argo, any number of companies, they would see that there is a team with dozens or hundreds of people devoted to every single component of building an AV stack that IIHS seems uh, unaware of. We, I mean, I don't have much more to add here except that um, I was more amused than anything else by reading it. I, I, um, was, I, hope, I, I don't yeah. think it would have been that big of an issue if every single article seemed to just focus on essentially one of the first details that was put in that press release or whatever. Yeah. So, so their argument, their argument was that writers might have a preference for something that trades off with safety, specifically sort of getting to their destination quicker. And, and their core, (laughs) their core assumption about how these systems are being developed is that the writer is going to, uh, have a choice. Yeah, have a choice, right? They're going to say, and it's sort of like upload, you know, the protect document versus protect pedestrian, right? Um, which is it's it's sci-fi. There's no one, and and that was our point. Was like, if people, if if you took the time to actually even read this, you might assume that AV developers are developing AVs in a way that give the rider control over how safe that vehicle performs. When in fact, everything that we know from everything that AV companies say, safety is the reason they're doing it. It's the fundamental challenge. And, and, and there, no one has ever talked about giving a rider the option of foregoing safety for, for speed, improved speed or time to destination or for any How other much you want to bet? How much you want to bet folks at IHS saw the TV show Upload four or six weeks ago and th- that had some influence on their thinking. I don't, I, I, really, I doubt I, it. I, I really I, I'm going to, so. I'm actually going to be, I'm going to call with IHS and, and I'm, I'm very curious to, to hear like, like, like you know, and, and just uh, hopefully that illustrates, you know, by, by, you know, pointing out some of these assumptions, we're not saying IHS is bad. We're not even saying the study itself is bad. Like I said, there's some valuable insights into crash data here. It was simply the application of that to, to like you say, Kirsten, a hypothetical scenario. And by the way, their hypothetical included the assumption that um, we had a hundred percent AV fleet. Well, that's a huge <laughs> hypothetical, right? Right. The hypotheticals um, are on consumer behavior, technological, like application, technical ability, and, 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 and in this case, so yeah. that's a lot of assumptions to be placing. And you're right, right. That, that, that the there were some really interesting breakdowns of crash data, which I wish had been like, forget about automated vehicles for a second. Just break down that that all that crash data as these are the biggest areas, for example, where uh, crashes could be eliminated is on these factors, for example, that would be very interesting to me. Yeah. And, and I would actually like to see that data applied to like ADAS, like where can ADAS be effective in, in right? Cause this basically breaks down where humans are weak and, and a lot of ADAS is convenience features rather than safety. And I think that, you know, thinking about 
you know, taking that data and how it's broken down into different, um, you know, of, uh, how common the different kinds of human errors are uh, could provide some really interesting insight into how to provide better uh, systems that support a human driver safety rather than just sort of trying to offer convenience, which as we all know, and we've discussed it many times, um, can come with a lot of really problematic, uh, uh, you know, unintended consequences. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. Um, Can I transition to asking Alex a question? Yep. Bring it. Is it true that you've become a worse driver as a result of using autopilot? Yeah. So JF Musial accused accused you and... Okay, yeah, I want to hear your answer to this. this is like this transition. Was in, I got some in my back pocket here. Right, so, so JF was in the car with me in uh, New Jersey, and um, and said, "If you don't stop using autopilot, I will tweet that you're a worse driver." And I said, "JF, it's not that I'm a worse driver; it's that I let autopilot do things while monitoring it, ready to take over, because I'm curious to see what it will do." And he said, I don't believe you. And so he said, turn it off and just try to drive the car. And what happened? And then I said, if I turn off autopilot, something bad's going to happen. And he said, do you know how insane that is for you to say, Alex Roy? And I said this. If you engage the TAC, the traffic aware cruise control, the radar cruise control on the Tesla, um, on a road, you can drive, um, you know, I think, I think it's up to 90 miles an hour, hundred miles an hour. Um, but you still have to steer it. Um, and here I am in Western New Jersey on roads with the speed limits, 50 miles an hour, uh, 50 miles an hour. So if you engage autopilot, uh, which, you know, then adds the steering uh, auto steer function, the car will drive the speed limit. And so I routinely drive around New Jersey and Pennsylvania on autopilot anywhere I can because it prevents me from speeding um, on on uh, secondary roads with both my hands on the wheel the whole time. So, so what uh, you're saying is is that is that a speed limit mandatory speed limiters would be uh, a cheap a cheaper way, right? I mean, that would be the core value that you get out of autopilot <laughs> could be provided by a much cheaper uh, speed limiter. As someone who believes in freedom. Um, uh, I think it's a debate worth having for me. You're just you're, you're guys, saying guys, that, that I love, you guys, I, I'm not going to lie. I love the fact it. that in daily commuting, when I may be cognitively unfocused, that um, I have a feature which restricts my speed. It absolutely does. I love it, and as a result, I basically never speed. 
And why should anyone so you lack does it, you lack the self does it make your to follow basic laws? And and I also want to touch on this this question of 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 right. Do you feel like it makes you a worse? So driver, here's an though. interesting thing. In that's the really Tesla, the question. When the system is off, I am I think a worse driver. But if I'm driving another car like my old Porsche um, or my Morgan or anything else, my BMW. I'm just as good as I always was. Um, hmm. There's no question. When I get in this car, my it's like having a cell phone on your desk while you have dinner with someone. Even if the phone is turned over and you're not looking at it, that it is there. It, there's like a cognition decrement, like a social decrement. I think is is a parallel yeah. to the skill decrement in a semi-automated vehicle. Now I have only anecdotal evidence that my driving is still good in a purely level zero vehicle. Um, in fact, it's probably a little worse there too. So, you know, something Jeff, what he said probably has merit. I mean, you mentioned also being on, on your commute specifically, uh, sort of extra cognitive load or like a lack of focus. Do you think that using autopilot regularly? I don't think, I don't know if it's that, autopilot or? specifically. You know, when, recently I spent, uh, a bunch of time in a Porsche Taycan and also in a Volvo, um, uh, V90, who, which both had you know level two systems, whose lane keeping is not as uh, good as the Tesla, um, and they don't have camera based driver monitoring. In those vehicles, I could also feel my a uh, bit of skill skill decrement for sure. Um, there is something about having a system that controls speed and lane keeping that over time you fall into the gap between the system capability and what you're cognition needs to be that that i, I guess we want to call that the um this uh, cognition gap or expectation gap i don't know what the missy cummings would have a term for it because you're st- you have a skill decrement but then you have your per- your ex- your perception of of what's happening and the reality of what the system can do and in that gap is all the danger um i think it's probably greater in a tesla because the tesla inspires more confidence um that gap certainly exists in in other vehicles with, with similar systems. So, and the only way around it is a camera based driver monitoring system. I, I think it'll be, it's interesting because, um, so I have Alex's other car, um, Tesla, and occasionally I drive it. I don't really, uh, use, I mean, I, I do it to test it and see how capable it is, but when I'm just running errands really quickly or whatever, just to like get the car out, I don't, I just drive myself normally. But I would say that when I have used it, like when we drove back from Vegas or, you know, long distance trips, and then I've gotten into like my other vehicle, which doesn't have any of that. It's a very stripped down basic vehicle. I have to remind myself that there aren't, (laughs) there's no adaptive cruise. Like you have to be far more focused. So I kind of wonder if over time as um, people maybe have, like more modern vehicles and then go into an older vehicle. If there's going to be a bit of a uh, breakdown of expectations of what a vehicle can do. So, so I actually have this problem with backup cameras. Oh yeah. So we have a, a pickup truck that has a backup camera. And when I've been driving that for a while, I just get so used to it. It's, it's not just a camera, but then also like an audible alert. Mm-hmm. And so even if I'm not looking at it, I know like if I back into some or towards something that, that the audible alert will get picked up or will, will alert me to it. And then we go and drive our older car 
And like, I'll just catch myself just like backing up at like, you know, kind of highish speeds for, for that kind of maneuver and realizing, wait a second, like there's literally nothing to warn me unless I have a very clear view of exactly what's behind me. And I haven't, I haven't hit anything, but like, you can see that, that, um, the reliance, it's a very powerful psychological thing. And it actually doesn't even take that much time uh, for it to start working on you. So quick question before we move on to our final topic, which I'm not even sure what it is. Do you think, and maybe we'll like, maybe use Coco as the example. Do you think it's best for new drivers, once they become new drivers, to start out with like a manual transmission, like yes. a very basic yes. vehicle, and then go up to a more um, advanced vehicle with ADOS systems? Or Yes, primitive, primitive start. There's no alternative. Okay, but if you're really, really worried about safety, then is that concerning you? Because they're going to be in a vehicle that doesn't have all those systems. I, I don't want to say Darwinian principle should win here, but um, if you don't start uh, with difficulty and consequences, you will never learn. Never. Um, and uh, you, you put a child on a bicycle, uh, has training wheels, so they can stand up straight. You take them off, they're going to fall. Um, it happens, but you don't want someone to fall in a 4,000 pound vehicle and kill someone while learning um, who is not cognitively engaged. We've got people have to learn basic skills. You got to walk before you can run. Uh, there's no way around it. And I cannot wait until every new vehicle sold has a real driver monitoring system. I'd like it to have privacy built in too, but we need to have these, these camera based systems unless you want we get into a millimeter wave radar for the cat for the cabin and everybody. And this is the onus is on Tesla owners and fans who's ever been opposed to some real active driver monitoring in a vehicle level two is morally compromised. I would, I would add Kirsten to sort of my response to your dilemma that you pose there is that, you know, most States there's a period, I guess it's only if you have your learner's permit and, uh, but, but a lot of times there'll be a period where, um, you know, you have to be, you have to have someone who's over the age of 18 in the vehicle with you. Right. Um, and, and I think even, even absent those legal requirements, I think that, you know, if I were a parent of a kid, um, I could think of very few things that were more worth my time than making sure my kid is a good defensive driver with a broad range of skills. And I think that, that, you know, ultimately education starts at home. You can, you can have you know, drivers at at school, all kinds of things. But like, if, you know, for, if you especially take driving seriously and, and see it as a really important skill, because, you know, you, you take your life in your hands every time you get out on the road, um, teaching your kid well. And, and so what I would, what I would suggest is, you know, parents should teach the kids on the, you know, oldest, least sophisticated vehicle possible. One of the earliest vehicles I drove was my dad's 66 Ford F100 pickup. It didn't even have synchro mesh in first gear. And like you learn and, and, you know, look like mechanical sympathy is not something that is relevant at all to modern cars, but it does as a beginner, it forces you to mentally envision the system that you're manipulating. Right. And that in turn inculcates this different kind of relationship to driving a deeper relationship than most people have. And so I think that was a really important experience for me. And so I think that, that, that supervised learning uh, with a primitive vehicle is one of the best things that, that I think you can do for a young driver. 
Well, you understand the mechanics of the vehicle in a way that I don't think is as possible in a modern vehicle. And but I get the I get the potential conflict for some parents who are like, oh, I want to put my kid in the most advanced modern ADAS system vehicle. But and I think that that's going to become more of a pressing question in the next decade or two because think about how much more advanced vehicles will be. 10 years from now, and also how rare manual transmission vehicles will be. I mean, I, my first three cars or my first two cars were, or manuals. And, um, I can say that I personally think that putting every kid in a manual transmission vehicle, especially like, it's very difficult to text and drive and do things like that. I know it's possible if you like wanted to do it, but it is pretty difficult. And you also learn how to anticipate traffic anticipate moves you're like thinking in i always you're just engaged yeah more. you're engaged yeah no and, and what's really scary is thinking about like um our our recent episode with anya denari of zf and just how every vehicle is going to have sort of a level two two plus system you know quite don't say level two plus I, so okay we can what about two plus plus? um okay let's call it a level two system what? you know very soon and and i agree i mean i i definitely think that like you know, if, again, hypothetically, I don't have a child. I'm, um, but if I did, not only would I want to teach them on a manual, but then, but then I would definitely want them to not use driver assistance systems until I was very confident that they had. And again, it's not just just physical skills; it's also about developing an attitude that you bring to driving. Mm-hmm. And until I saw evidence that that you know they had those things nailed down, I would say then we can talk about using these ADAS systems because in a, for a large, you know, for a lot of them, especially adaptive cruise control and, and, and lane keeping, uh, these are comfort features. These are not actually safety features. And I think that's one of the, the things spoken like uh, the communications director for an automated vehicle education. I think it's a really important thing to educate people about because it is uh, my friends. I've got to go, forgive me, but I have to go make sure that autonomous vehicles actually do what they say they're going to do. And I have to fight misinformation. So, wow, is that your new title, fighter of misinformation? I've been I, I've been on both sides of every argument because the truth is out there. Um, gotta go find it, um, guys. I gotta go. Uh, we will talk about sci-fi. And thanks again for listening to another episode of the Atomic Cast. 